Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Ah, we're off. We're off. We're just we're just talking about what would happen if uh, I had shat myself uh, uh, with, with one minute to spare. I'm yeah. saying uh, I would have just uh, carried on and sat in it and uh, uh, sorted myself up during the first. Alice Cooper song. Uh, Nathaniel says, probably delay it five. I would have delayed um, it five. But that's probably less professional, wasn't it, of me? Because I would have delayed everything, man. I was saying, I think, I thought I'd shut uh, Zoom Town with moments gotcha. to spare. Gotcha. But uh, Nathaniel has got a one trap mind and is always preparing for that. <laughs> just in case scenario of anyone anywhere shitting themselves. So it's good to My be prepared. My name's Nick Helm. My name's Nick Helm. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. Hello. Uh, and you're listening to Be Prepared. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to uh, Nick and that's Fan Club. Um, first rule of Fan Club, tell your friends about Fan Club. Sure. I don't, I'm not sure if people have been doing that, have they? Not for a little while. I have to don't check. feel like they have been. We'll check... We'll check the Maltese charts, but I'm pretty sure that people have not been... Um, um, tell your friends, and by all means, write questions, you know, throw questions at us, suggest uh, suggest films to us. Um, you know, um, just join in. We want to make this as interactive as it possibly can be, uh, being a pre-recorded show uh, <laughs> uh, without a phone in. We should have a phone in, shouldn't we? That'd be good. Should have a phone in. To be fair as well, when we read the letters, I don't often remember what they say immediately after, so they might well recommend things and then I forget. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, been, I've been struggling with this and I need to know the answer really before I move on with my life. Um, oh, hang on a minute. We're not charting in Malta this week. What? what? How's that fucking possible? How's We've fallen out of the charts. How is that fucking possible? We mean, we must be in the charts. It's not like what? We were number fucking 54. Then we were 74. What? And then nobody at all listened in Malta. And then what? Fucking hell, we're never getting John Colshaw back. I tell you that for nothing. He does nothing for us in Malta. No. Right. Um, that's annoying. Uh, yes. Okay, but then um, 107, 114 in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 114 yeah. Netherlands. That's okay. a new one. That's a new territory we've conquered. 114 straight in the nether regions. <laughs> um, so, sure. All right. Okay. Um, that's thrown me for a loop. I feel like uh, the little bee. I feel like the little bee on um, Honey Nut Loops. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say now. I had a different th- right. Okay. So what I was going to say was, here's my question. Mm-hmm. I watched the documentary Bruno versus Tyson. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's on Sky. It's an hour and a half. Uh-huh. It's for Sky documentaries. Uh. It's like a feature, featuring old footage and interviews and stuff. Is that? Can I count that as a film? Of course, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. Feature-length documentary. Probably made yeah. for cinemas. 
No, I think it was made for TV. I reckon that's... I reckon you can count that. How was it? It felt made for TV. Um, interesting. Really interesting. To be honest, obviously, we all grew up in a Frank Bruno world. I've been... I've been... I never really felt like Frank Bruno and Mike Tyson were realistic contenders, you know. But I think... Um, I think I've under... A, I underestimated uh, Frank Bruno. Um, I found... I found... I found his life, like, really relatable and also um, sort of, not tragic, because he's sort of, like, on top of things, but he's had sort of, like, a real roller coaster of a the life. The premise is that but he might... revisits him, is it, after they, they meet sort up or something? Sort of. Well, the premise is, like, basically talking it through their whole rivalry. Uh, so Frank Bruno, I think, was five years older than... Um, uh, Mike Tyson, and they met when Mike Tyson was... I mean, fucking hell. When I was little and there was Frank Bruno, he was always 40, yeah? Mm. And then when you watch the footage, like, most of your memories of Frank Bruno were when he was, like, 28. And you know, he was never 28 when he was doing <laughs> all that. It is isn't it? Like, pe old, older people... Older people in the... Um, 80s just seemed older. They yeah. just, do you know what I mean? But it's like he was, he was 20. Do you, but do you know what I mean? It's like, no, I do know. Like, it's you assume everyone's older because you're little. Everyone's a perpetual teenager now, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, um, so Frank, so Frank Bruno was 28. I think he was 31 when he, uh, when he retired from, from boxing. He had his final fight with Mike Tyson. So they fought twice. And it, it's really it's really sort of interesting. But, like, because, I don't know, Mike Tyson uh, was a convicted rapist and he bit someone's ear off and he's just sort of like this animal. And, um, uh, and then you've got Frank Bruno who's in a dress that's on Null's house party. And it's kind of like... Um, their sort of public images. When I heard that Frank Bruno was fighting Mike Tyson back in the early 90s, it just felt such an unfair match. It felt like basically there was this, you know, guy that was going to get ripped apart by a bulldog, right? And, um, yeah, it was... Um, so when you watch it and you realise that I mean, it doesn't. It just doesn't feel like a fair match or a fair. Exactly. Match. I think growing up, Frank Bruno, although we knew him as a boxer, I would almost think of him as like a sort of personality, almost like he wasn't a proper boxer, like he was a sort of um, almost like a circus boxer or something. He was showbiz, and I remember that happening and thinking, "Oh, that seems wild," because they don't seem to exist in the same world at all for me. Mike Tyson was a boxer like a serious boxer, and Frank Bruno was almost light entertainment. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I just... I, so I found the documentary uh, really... It's actually surprisingly really moving and interesting. What I would say is it's sort of billed as... Oh, Mike Tyson. I, I, I didn't really realise um, that it was going to be Mike Tyson and Frank Bruno meet up for the first time in all these years. And basically, Frank Bruno, it was his last fight. 
So he won the World Heavyweight Championship and then uh, he'd been trying to get it for ages. I think it was his third attempt to win it. And then <clears throat> six months later, he fought Mike Tyson and lost it. And the basic, I think the angle... I guess the angle that they may have entered into the documentary, because documentaries have a habit of, I've made some documentaries, and they have a habit of dictating to you what they're about. So you'll go in with one idea, and then by the end of it is something else. I would imagine that, I think the best documentaries are the ones that sort of um, um, almost allow them to, they don't have a preconceived idea of what they're doing. You know, if you look at um, uh, Caption the Freedmans or something like that, it's a documentary that was about something else. And then because of circumstances that happened within the making of the documentary, it turned into something else. Um, and I think it's when you get, and I think this is probably a TV documentary where it's kind of like they have an agenda and they're trying to fulfil the agenda and it doesn't quite live up to that agenda and maybe if they'd let go of a couple of their things, yeah. maybe it tries to do too many things at once because as a, as a biography of, um, of, of, these, of the two fighters, of Tyson and Bruno, of the biography, it sort of takes you through not their lives but their history together which is fascinating because they're so different. Um, and and then it also sort of tacks on at the end, oh, it's Bruno and Tyson meeting up for the first time in all this time. And they have them sat... sat with, and they, I don't know how long they would have had. I imagine... Um, I still feel like the relationship is very sort of one-sided. Tyson feels very gracious. And um, I, I don't know what, they had an hour with him. And it's like you've got Tyson and Bruno sat around in Tyson's uh, living room having a chat, but then it just cuts to talking heads. So it's kind of like you get little snippets and sound bites of Bruno and Ty I don't even know if they had an hour together. You have these tiny little sound bites and snippets of them talking to each other at the end. And then it keeps cutting to uh, Mike Tyson saying what he really thinks about Bruno. Um in a talking head and it's kind of like so you've got this you know like almost within the last 15 minutes you've got Frank Bruno getting on a plane going to America to see Mike Tyson to settle his demons because the last fight he had was with um, Tyson and it's kind of like he's never let it go um, and he's had all sorts of mental health problems and um, and so is Mike Tyson. And it's just a, so from a mental health level, it's really interesting coming at it from the point of view of uh, comedians. And that, um, you know, my film, I, ma I made a film about boxing called The Killer Machine, a short film. And, um, and that was using boxing as a metaphor for stand up comedy or trying something new that you're not good at. But like committing, I think there are parallels between, you know, having to get up on your own and do a thing and be the best you can be at it in order to succeed. I think there are parallels. It doesn't involve um, hitting people, uh, unless it, you mean hitting people with punchlines. Um, but I think, I think, I, think I, I found it really, I found it like a really interesting documentary, but I also felt like if they'd have stuck to one thing or the other, 
I think that they didn't basically get the footage that they wanted from them meeting up. And so maybe that's like a... They were like, well, we've got some footage, we should use it. Or in actual fact, they may... I don't know. They were obviously on a schedule as well, and it was pitched as this is going to be kind of like the third bout. It's going to be the third time uh, Frank Bruno and Mike Tyson come head to head. and, And it's kind of... It's really interesting. You really feel from Frank Bruno, um, and um, and it's an, and it's a very um, it's a very sanitized, uh, sympathetic version of events in terms of Mike Tyson. So I'm not sure exactly. Well, I know how I feel about it. It's I, it's uncomfortable, but um, also Mike Tyson has kind of like had this career as a guy that just pops up and is like, oh, it's friendly old Mike Tyson that's popping up yes. in a, a, as a cameo in uh, Crocodile, Crocodile Dundee in LA. Oh, look, it's friendly Mike Tyson. is a lovely little cameo in the Hangover film. You know, and it's kind of like, I've never really bought into that. Um, he's changed a lot. And I think that they've both changed. And I think it's... it's it, um, it's life is go into whatever the um, however the whatever the perception is of Frank Bruno in the states. Did they have a similar one to we did, or is that very much an Anglo idea of him as this quite cuddly figure? I don't know. But Frank Bruno, Bruno was huge in England. You know, he had his mm. own spe- spitting image puppet. Um, you know, but um, that's how big he was. But um, <laughs> I always got the feeling that. I, you know, I feel like America is international and we are an island. Yeah. So to get, to get anything off England uh, is a kind of a miracle. To get, like, you know, um, a personality on a boat and ship them over to America and for them to do well at all is just... It's, it's kind of like car boot sales, do you know what I mean? Whereas... America is kind of just absolutely international. So the fact that Mike Tyson even knows who Frank Bruno is is sort of mind-boggling <laughs> to me. But um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. But it's just sort of like Frank Bruno was doing sort of pantomime and stuff, and um, you can just tell that he was really kind of like he was doing a lot of stuff for the money and to keep his kind of like star um, in. Uh, it, in the uh, what Ascendant. in the atmosphere in the horizon, yeah, and um, and it was kind of like the wrong stuff. He was doing what he was offered, like you know, advert. But he was people kept saying that he was selling out, and you could just you can see in the documentary how much it really hurt him. And then when he wins his fight, you can see how much that that has really affected him. And he was so loved in England. It was just sort of like this thing. Now, basically, the angle that they go for is that everyone loved Frank Bruno and um, Mike Tyson was this villain. And you can see it. Like, Frank Bruno comes in in his robe and it's all, like, red, white and blue because those are the British colours on the <laughs> union. And then Frank, uh, Mike Tyson comes in just wearing, like, black... And he just looks like, it's like wrestling, you know. And we had Eddie Hearn on and he was talking about like putting on a show. And it's kind of like, some of this is then putting on a show. And some of it is kind of like, ah, that's just, it seems to me that's, 
that's what it was. Frank Bruno feels like an like an evil entity, and Frank Bruno feels like he's happy doing Noel Noel's house party. Yeah, and but now I, he's going to. I remember him to. winning like the the world championship, and even that finding that quite odd. Almost, yeah, like I say, it was almost like he, I didn't think of him as like a real boxer. He was kind of like. I don't know, like a cartoon boxer, or, or I guess he was acting like someone who had already retired, who was actually actively having these bouts rather than having this sort of second second career as a sort of fun, fun sort of cuddly character. I think when we knew him, he was semi-retired. So the period where he was sort of like most famous was him being semi-retired. Which would have been between, I mean, the, the fights for Mike Tyson was 88 to, uh, when was it? Was it 88? I, I think there was like a six year period between 89 to 94. Hmm. Yeah, it feels there like. Was a six year, there was a six year period in between them, so that won't be right. Um yeah, so he was sort of like semi-retired in between, kind of like, and and but he'd 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 had four goes at the um, uh, world championship, and he won on the third, and then he lost on the fourth. Um, it's just it's it's an interesting documentary. I don't feel like it tells like the whole story, but it's definitely trying to tell the story between how these two guys are linked, and I feel like Frank Bruno is probably more definitely linked to Mike Tyson than Mike Tyson is to Frank Bruno. You know? Right. Okay. So it's maybe it's trying to sort of like it's telling Frank Bruno's story, and the angle they've gone is that he's haunted by Mike Tyson. When in actual fact, I think Mike Tyson has kind of like put a lot of stuff behind him. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's and it's interesting. Frank Bruno went to sort of like a mental asylum for uh, for a little bit, and you can see that there's like this competition between them, where. They're saying, like, um, oh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard being uh, a boxer and being in the limelight and then coming out of the limelight and retiring and not knowing who you are and what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it is. But then Mike Tyson also throws in, I've been to the Mental Institute ten times. And you feel like he's kind of like, it's like a power play, where it's like, it's little Frank Bruno. He's coming around my Los Angeles house and we're talk we're chatting. But it's really kind of... You feel like Frank Bruno's so polite and kind. And um, Mike Tyson is kind of being very kind of like gracious, but it's he's in charge. So I don't know. It's, um, yeah, it was, in, it was I, I found the first three quarters much more interesting than the end. And then the end kind of was a little bit like, all right, okay. This feels like this was the reason for the documentary in the first place. And it doesn't quite pull off, but... Um, yeah, but if it counts as a film, um, I'll tweet about it. <laughs> I think it definitely how does. Many, I would. How many films have you seen this year so far? Do you know what? I'm not sure. Yeah, because I don't have them. I do it on letterbox now, so I don't have that number. You're right. Yeah, I that. hate it. I hate it on letterbox. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to. I literally used to like reading all your reviews on Twitter. And then you got bullied into it by people saying, no, you're doing it wrong. But you know what? I preferred it. Um, I'm just going to say, I preferred it, on, uh, preferred it on Twitter. Yeah, I could go back to it next year, I suppose. I think I just quite next like year. the idea of doing it. I don't know. Well, 
letterbox you can kind of do telly things as well or some telly things it accepts but i've done 86 so far 86 86 of uh but that includes things like um can't get you out of my head the adam curtis documentary uh it's a sin so it has lots of things that it would have tv things that it puts on it's a sin doesn't count no, I'm not sure it does. But it was on there, so you go, I'll put it on. It's a, t- it's a TV show. What TV are you, show. What are, you are you reviewing TV now? Is that what you're doing? Is that, doing is that what you think? It's are like this TV show. It's, 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 it's everything. It's not just about the same. Are you a TV? <laughs> it's like this show. It's not just a film show, is it? It's, um... One week it could be someone talking about their favourite Lego set. Yeah. Another week, the greatest <laughs> roller coaster they've ever been on. Sure. Uh, we might be able to find out what films you've been watching this week. Or it could be <laughs> what the greatest John Lennon album of all time is. It's just films. Just films, um, mainly. So, yeah, but like, so what are you? Are you uh, hmm. Yeah, because, I, I, I mean, I included season one of Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Just because it was however long, what eight hours is it? Or it's not eight hours; it's they're half hour each, aren't they? Yeah, about half hour. So it was like five hours, however long. Um, yeah. So I included that because it was Star Wars, but I don't. I felt like it was cheating. I've watched. Have you watched? Even this. Even this. um, No, uh, we've got Solo to watch. Oh yeah. And then I thought, fuck it, if we're doing that, I've bought the Ewoks movies on oh, yeah. um, on uh, DVD. So once we've finished Solo, then we're going to go and watch Caravan of Courage and Be- Battle for Endor. Battle for Endor. Because, uh, I mean, you can't include some and then not others, right? Yeah. Well, I guess now they would say they don't count, do they? But, yeah, it is silly. I find they it all silly. They count. And then what else would you include? Would you include that Clone Wars feature length that pilot episode? That, that was a film, wasn't it? That was by definitely a film. I saw it at the cinema. By Warner Brothers, it was. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers put it out. Yeah. It was really weird. I did Obviously see it everything... at the Warner West End, so it makes sense. Everything was 20th Century Fox from Lucasfilm. I think even when Lucasfilm could just basically release stuff themselves without 20th Century Fox, they still went with 20th Century Fox. You know, uh, John Williams deliberately, or George Lucas deliberately asked John Williams to write the Star Wars fanfare in the same key as the 20th Century Fox fanfare, so that it felt like one piece of music. But it always has in my head. Yeah, whenever you hear it, you always want it to go, you always want the 20th Century Fox fanfare to go straight into Star Wars. Yeah. Um, and now there's so many eye dents and stuff that, you know, I think it says, uh, it's like the Disney fan friend that it says bad robot and then something else and it comes up with Lucasfilm and then, and it's kind of, ah, you know, it was perfect. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, when the Clone Wars became a TV series, they made, um, it's weird. So I find that all very confusing, right? So... There were the pre, so the, yeah, blah blah blah. Prequels came out, and then in the mid two thousands, Cartoon Net- Network. I was going to go. I 
It's going to go full disc disc jock. <laughs> Cartoon Network. The Cartoon Network. Um, the Cartoon <laughs> Network uh, brought out. Who's the guy? June, you might know. The guy that did it, the animation. Johnny Bravo. Tarkovsky. He did uh, Johnny Bravo, did Powerpuff Girls, he did Samurai Jack, and then he did um, Clone Wars, mm. or The Clone Wars, which were a series of five-minute shorts that went on to infinitum, uh, with, um, which were just sort of um, five-minute, very stylized, animated shorts showing the adventures of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker in between episodes two and three. Mm-hmm. So, so when you watch um, episode two, and they're all getting ready for the Clone Wars to happen, it's very exciting. You think, oh great, next film will be all the Clone Wars we've been hearing about, and then episode three starts, and it's the end of the Clone. Wars. All the Clone Wars <laughs> have happened, and it's just all dying down. And you're like, what, 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 what? And they go, don't worry, we've got this cartoon series which will come in five-minute serials. Um, and I think then they did a second season which was like 15-minute episodes. Um, so then that was The Clone Wars, or Clone Wars, on Cartoon Network. And then what happened was um, George Lucas became fascinated by Thunderbirds and he decided that he wanted to do sort of like a Thunderbird-esque... Um, TV serial, so with puppets. You got this really ugly sort of no, it's CGI, but the CGI characters have got big eyes uh. and big heads, and they're all based on the fact that they're meant to sort of look like Thunderbirds puppets. And they're not. It's not. It's obviously it's like taking an influence from Thunderbirds rather than yeah. being like a direct kind of like. But you, there. It's a really fucking ugly as fuck TV series that doesn't look great. And to launch that, Warner Brothers uh, did a um, did a feature length sort of like pilot episode, which was essentially three episodes like tied together, um, which I've never seen. It, it got really bad reviews, and um, I think the series got a lot better. People like s- s- thought it was. Fantastic. But that was called Clone Wars or The Clone Wars, but it's got nothing to do with The Clone Wars and Clone Wars. I don't know. I remember the the, the, the little five-minute ones, really enjoying those. I've never seen the, the series, but I have seen that movie. I don't remember it being fine. It was kind of a slightly sort of kidsy version of it. Uh, but it was fine. I, I, I enjoyed it perfectly well, I remember. Yeah, I really like the, and I guess it's again, it's something where they've, um, I guess they've rewritten that, haven't they? So, do the five-minute ones still count? Have they been written out so. of, written out of history or whatever? I don't think so. I don't care to be honest. It's, um, it, you know, it's just the films for me. And uh, oh, let's not go into this. It's, but <laughs> bottom line is, I haven't seen the second series of Mandalorian yet, but. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, it's like reading, you know. It's like um, if a book really grabs me, I'll read it from beginning to end in, in like yeah. a couple of sittings. And if it doesn't, I'll spend years 
floating around from book to book waiting to find something that grabs me same with tv series like when it came to the undoing that hugh grant thing i, I zipped through that in as fast as i could and when it came to mandalorian i sort of like felt like i had to chug through the first series to get to the second series and now i've got through the first series i just really can't be bothered to sit down and commit that amount of time to the second series. i'd rather so right so yesterday um uh, two days ago, I watched all the money, all, all the money in the world. Oh yeah. Uh, me and my girlfriend have become real plum heads. That's what we've. Uh, <laughs> that's that's what she started calling us, and I was a bit like, yeah, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, you can call yourself. Uh, yeah. So my girlfriend's a real plum head. Um, so we watched all the money in the world, starring uh, Christopher Plummer. And last night we watched The Insider because it was sort of, I, want, I wanted sort of like, we've got, a, we've got to play a song in two minutes. Um, I really like thrillers. I sort of, all the money in the world sort of tick that box. And then I felt like Insider might be. I, th- I feel like Ridley Scott, I got a friend at university who, called Chris, who was really big into Ridley Scott uh, Terence Wrigley Mike. Scott. Wrigley? Hello, it's me, Wrigley Scott. He's back. <laughs> it's Stephen Seagull, and he's... Oh, let me go, let me go. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, Stephen Seagull has come along and Is eaten Wrigley Scott. Wrigley Scott. Oh, dear. Um, so he's really into... Bri- uh, he was really into David Fincher, uh, Terence Malick. Uh, Rid- Wrigley Scott and um, fucking who's who's the who's the guy who's the guy that I'm thinking of Michael, Michael Mann. Mann yeah so like really kind of like um, technical directors mm. and um, and so I watched two films in a row I watched All the Money in the World and then The Insider both for fucking long films um, so let's have a little think about that for two and a half minutes while we play a song and then we'll chat about what we've seen this week after after these short messages. And Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. We're back. And we're back. And we are back. Back. We'll listen to Five Star Family Fan Size Fan Club. Um, it's uh, it's another week. Um, I am really struggling at the moment. Uh, how how about you? Um, I am uh, kind of, I find now that the weeks are kind of going fast and sort of almost too fast in a way, like week to week to week, it's Wednesday again. I sort of can't believe where my time's going, Uh, which is good in a way. I mean, I guess we'll get through it faster, but I feel like life is passing me by at speed and another week of this and another week of this, but I'm kind of buoyed by the idea that things are possibly getting back to normal in uh and i'm looking forward to all the little 
the little um, landmarks of dates to look forward to that may or may not happen in the future. But I'm excited for those, but I'm also a bit like, come on, let's 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 just do this then. Let's get to let's get to the end of March. Let's get to mid April. Let's get to May. Let's get to June. But we'll I don't see. Believe any of it's, I don't believe any of it's going to happen. No, I don't know. I don't know. But um, I'm trying to be uh, I'm sort of... Uh, but I was excited by the idea of it as... Um, when they were saying June, in my head, it felt like I liked how optimistic it was because I was like, June? June? What do you mean? Not, not like um, October or January next year or... I didn't know what the, it seemed almost like, I'd never heard anyone say it like, you know, in a, in a, in a sort of sure, sure as damn it way. Yeah. Sort of mid June, we're sort of back to normal. And it's like, you reckon? All right. Let's aim for that. <laughs> no. Have you, have you had a jab yet? No, have you? No. I mean, I'm 40, so I'm, uh, or 41. God, I am, yeah. Nearly 42. Um, that's what's happened in lockdown. You were 39 when all this started, weren't you? I was, no, I was 40. I was 40 when this started. And now I'm almost 42. This is, this is how this is. This is the, um, this is the week. This is, uh, what's the date today? It's the third today. Yeah. On the 6th, on the 6th of March... So when this comes out on the 5th of March, it will be like uh, exactly a year. It was that Friday that I went to see Supergrass. That was the last time I went to, to an event. That's, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. A no, year. Um, I, I mean, it's so weird that that date has really stuck with me. I'm terrible with dates. I don't, I don't remember birthdays or anything like that. I know... But I can ballpark it, but don't get me into specifics. But with this, it's like 6th of March. Yeah. And then two weeks later was the 30th. And then that's when I'm, I got, you know, I was ill for two weeks. Like, fucking hell, it's a year. Anyway, I just, uh, I just, I don't know. I, I, but I think my way of dealing with it isn't to be hopeful or look forward to it. It's literally to just get on with everything as usual and... If something good happens, then brilliant. Yeah, I mean yeah. that is better. I'm building myself up for a fall, I think. No, it's not better. It's not better or worse, right? Hey? It's not. Hey. It's, it's. It's. I don't think. I'm not like saying oh, this is how I do it, Nat. So you're doing it wrong. I'm literally just saying that my coping. I think in stand up, in acting, in doing anything creative, you are rejected so often. You know, and my approach to exams was do the exam, hand it in, never talk about it ever again and see what, you know, and you'll, you'll find out later mm. if it's good or bad news, you know. And, but whereas, you know, you do exams at university and everyone would go to the student union and say, well, what do you get for question three? And what do you get? It's like, you can't change it. All you're going to do is hear that someone answered it correctly and you did it wrong and then you're going to beat yourself up for the next three months. Just fucking, it's done now. Move on. Mm. Carry on with your life, and then if it's good news, I got a first. So it's kind of like, do you know what I mean? It's like, um, and so with comedy and stuff, it's kind of you get so many rejections, and it's so difficult that you kind of like, um, oh, I went for an audition today, so I might get a part in something. Um, and you go, yeah, and then you don't hear from it, and then eventually 
you know, that thing that you auditioned for becomes uh, free to download on Sky. And you realise that, oh, they made it. They made it without you such a long time ago now that you can just, you don't even have to pay for it. It's, it's, it's just free. And, um, and that's, I think, that has trained me to just deal with, oh, yeah, we're going to be out in June. It's just like, sure, you tell me. You know, I've got a friend, what, we're allowed to meet up in gardens next week, are we? I think that's at the end of the month. I think that's the end of the month. Well, whenever it is, I've got a friend that said, I'm, come over and have a barbecue. And I'm like, sure. All right, you tell me when and where and I'll be there. But I'm not, like, planning it. Um, so, yeah, but it's not, it's not like, it's just personal uh, personal tactics, isn't it? If you yeah, no, it's how you deal with it. I just feel like there's been so many consistent disappointments that you just go fuck this. No, I'm just like I can I can deal with my own. I've got a desk that's arriving this week. I ordered it in January, and um, it's taken fucking ages uh, to deliver it. And then it was meant to be delivered by the third day, and then they said sorry about that. It's going to be delivered between the fifth and the eighth. So I get it Friday to Monday, sometime over the weekend. I'll have a desk, which means that I can suddenly start putting stuff from my living room into uh, my uh, office and I can start sort of like taking stuff from my office and put it into my bathroom and everything can kind of slot together properly and I can finally get my house sorted. Um, and, you know, a lot is hanging on this desk. And um, I'm living on a very... I, I'm in a submarine at the moment. And all of the and, and it, within this uh, ecosystem of this airtight submarine, there's a desk that's going to be delivered by a dinghy. We're going to have to resurface, collect this desk, and bring it under. You know, it's uh, the outside world can sort of like get on with it, and then give me a knock when it's ready. I think. <laughs> I think uh, by now you mean I'm the opposite. I just think I'm like uh, when between the first of January or post Christmas. And that announcement, I found that much tougher because I hated the how everything was so indefinite. Everything was just like, we're just locked down, are we? Till when? What for? And I feel like we'd done that before, and I felt like it felt like there was no end in sight. So I like to have a bit of light at the end of the tunnel that I can focus on and go, all right, well, that's what we're doing now. I'm getting to that date. Otherwise, it's that drift. And I think... Uh, the date I had in my mind, I think, was it 17th or whatever, when we went into lockdown, or when I went into lockdown. Um, and in my head, I remember thinking, if we get to that, that's going to feel really kind of significant and uh, and sort of heavily weighted in my mind. And then I had this idea that, all oh, right, well, I might be in lockdown again. I'll probably be in lockdown when it's my birthday again in at the end of April, which will be a whole year I've spent basically indoors. And and so I was finding that a, a sort of difficult prospect. But I think there's something about someone saying, yeah, you might well be in lockdown then, but, you know, we're, we're working on it. We're, uh, there are plans to not be. So that makes me feel a bit better about it and a bit more like, oh, I think I can cope with that. Didn't we talk about this last week? It doesn't feel... Yeah, I know, but it's, it's Groundhog Day, isn't it? But what I, what I don't feel like is that they've gone, we've cured it. 
Yeah. It's just a case of you all getting in a line, and then when you've all had the jab and we're all cured, then we can go back out again. I don't feel like anyone has said that. I feel like it's, uh, should we try and go outside again and see what happens? It's like, <laughs> I don't have any um, confidence in, in any of the approach to any of this. And so it's kind of like, sure, all right, but why don't you try and cure it? Why don't you try and, you know... Give everyone it. Have like, have like, a, have like a solution to it. As opposed to just trial and error. And, uh, yeah, it will be June if everyone is on their best behaviour until then. You know, don't, don't put it up to the general public's best behaviour. Mm. We're fucking morons. Um, anyway, speaking of the general public, uh, all the money in the world. It's uh, the big hit at the cinemas, which means that it wasn't, I don't know, I think it made 40 million. Um... Uh, so have you seen All the Money in the World? Never seen it. Never seen it. What a fascinating film. So All the Money in the World was a Ridley Scott film based on uh, the kidnapping of... Uh, uh, Getty's. John Paul Getty III. Um, and basically uh, it, was, it was based on a book which was about um, the heirs to the Getty... Um, uh, millions, billions, um, and their unfortunate lives. And I'm assuming that one of the chapters was about... Um, uh, the, I mean, I learned nothing from it. The main, guy's, <laughs> the main guy's grandson gets kidnapped. I'm assuming that's like a chapter or a couple of chapters. And what's interesting about... The, I, all the money in the world has got to be one of the worst titles to any film ever. It just... I, it's kind of difficult to say, and it doesn't really mean anything. And they kind of use it in context a couple of times in the film, and you still go, "That's a that's a shit title for a film, though, right?" <laughs> um, so, so that kind of put me off it. Um, I'm not a massive Wrigley fan. Um, uh, I really just. I think Alien is one of the, if not, well, it's just, just one of the best films ever made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've not really enjoyed any of his other films that much. I've, I've always said, I've always preferred Tony, uh, Tony Scott. Um, and Ridley Scott does this, has, walks this weird balance between doing absolutely huge, bonkers science fiction um but like slow paced it's sort of like he wants to be Blade Runner is so slow it's kind of like trying to be 2001 you know and I think Alien is heavily influenced by 2001 it's slow the pacing is slow but it's also trying to do something that's very sort of like B movie and cheesy and I think it works really well with Alien because it has like this um, absolutely solid structure and story behind it with Blade Runner it's kind of like yeah it's like a it's like a chase film. It's sort of like a western, where he's got to he's got to collect five criminals that have got loose. But it's very, I you know, I've never. Also, I don't know what version of Blade Runner to watch. And then he'll make stuff like G.I. Jane and um, uh, Thelma and Louise, um, uh, White Squall. Did he do White Squall? He did. Yeah, yeah, um, that's him. 
And he'll make some sort of like, uh, not actually, I should, you shouldn't lump Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise is a great film. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he'll sort of like do something that, matchstick men, something that's really sort of like disposable and you're kind of like, what attracted you to this film? Um, and so I'm, I kind of, yeah, I've got, the, I mean, The Duelist is an amazing film. That was his first film. That's a really great film, which is sort of like a Napoleonic Terminator. Um, where you got this one guy pursuing another guy across the Napoleonic Wars. It's brilliant. Um, so Ridley Scott, yeah, it's a bit of a frustrating. I never bought into Gladiator that much, you know. Me either. And I don't like, I don't like the Alien prequels. No. Um, I never really liked that because that was that period in the late nineties, early two thousands. Following Gladiator, it became like it's Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott again doing these movies, and almost each one after the other seemed like. Nah, nah, not not bothered. So what did they do? They did Gladiator, and then they did a year in France, didn't they? Did a year in France. Uh, they did. I think they did three. Right? There's another one too. I think. Uh, no, it's gone. I remember them all being terribly uninteresting to me. I mean, I'm. I don't. I. I, uh, I just. I'm not a massive Russell Crowe fan. So it's kind of like. Um, uh, I just don't. I don't warm to him, um, and yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a bit later on, in um, I think he's good casting for Superman's dad, maybe, mm. but only because I feel like he's sort of maybe a little bit like Marlon Brando in some respects, <laughs> and not. I don't know. I don't. Know. Anyway, but like, so, so all the men in the world was this film that was made. Uh, and um, it's a kidnap movie star Mark Wahlberg, who's another troubling actor for me, mm. and um, Michelle Williams, who I love, uh, and starring Kevin Spacey. And they filmed the entire film with Kevin Spacey, and then uh, it was going to come out in December 2017. And in October 2017, the film was edited, ready to go. Trailers were coming out. Posters were made. Uh, All the Money in the World starring Michelle Williams, Kevin Spacey and Mark Wahlberg. And then, uh, like, six weeks in October, six weeks before the film released, it was going to close some film festival. I can't remember which one. Uh, Maybe it was the Venice Film Festival, but it was going to close the film festival in autumn. And um, uh, or the AFI Film Festival, and uh, it was the big film that was going to close it all. And then the Kevin Spacey stuff all came out in October, and they were like, "Right, well, this film—I'm not sure it was a huge budget film. It's a period film, but the film cost something like fifty-five million dollars." Uh, and they were like, "Well, what do we do with this film? It's got Kevin Spacey, and what do we do? Do we just sort of like downplay that Kevin Spacey's in it? What do we do?" And they said, right, we'll just cut him out of the film. Having not seen the film, you think, okay, sure, we're going to cut him out of the film. And we're going to just refilm all of his scenes with Christopher Plummer instead. And it's kind of a bit baffling because you go, Kevin Spacey and Christopher Plummer, there's like 30 years age difference between them. Yeah. Um, It's kind of, okay, all right, but they're just going to swap them out. Okay. Um... And so I haven't seen this film in all this amount of time. And it was sort of like, 
they were saying this is a genius move because basically you've turned this um, this PR dilemma, this PR fiasco, into actually one of the selling points of the film. Watch this film. So the, 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 what they actually managed to do, which was the genius part of it, was they managed to do all the reshoots uh, and not change... They cancelled the film festival, but they didn't change the release date. So they did everything within the six weeks and then got it out in cinemas on time. Didn't have to change any of the... Well, they obviously had to change all the marketing. They had to change all the posters. They had to change all of the... Um, they had to change all of the... Oh, we're getting messaged here. What have I done wrong? I don't think wrong. Uh, 22 scenes... Yeah, 22 scenes were completely... Re yeah, this is, part of this, this is part of storytelling, Natalie. I'm just about to get to the... the yeah, you're, you're, what you want to do is you want to, you want to say, um, a horse has a long face, and, he, and then he walked into a bar, and the barman said, you've got a long face. I'm, I'm building up to all of this. So it's, it's, art, it's artistry of storytelling. Uh, um... <laughs> um so fucking, <laughs> um, fucking Spacey was out, wasn't he? Um, and then they replaced. Anyway, so I haven't watched it since 2007. I just think it's got a terrible title. Wasn't I? Don't know why I didn't watch it. But one of the selling points is the fact that Christopher Plummer came along. Christopher Plummer died. It's on the list of many, many Christopher Plummer films. I've seen about three Christopher Plummer films, many including Dragnet. Many Christopher Plummer films uh, he made. I'm talking like Yoda. The scene I have not. He's become a What's big plumhead since, haven't you? I'm an absolute plumhead, mate. Um, oh my god, it's incredible. He's in the film. He's like in the whole film. <laughs> it's kind of like you go, wow. It's, it's impossible to watch the film really without going. Well, they wouldn't have had to reshoot that. That was safe. That's. <laughs> but like. But but there's one moment that they CGI'd, uh, they used green screen for, that basically uh, was this, uh, oh, it's this beautiful shot. It's like Lawrence of Arabia. It's this shot of this steam train that's uh, ploughing through, like, the Middle East. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And then Kevin Spacey gets off the train. And then they've CGI'd this kind of Christopher Plummer over the top of him. And that is the only bit that's really obvious. And then all the rest is like, he's in the fucking film, right, with all of the main cast. He's, it's not like Michelle Williams, Mark Wahlberg and Christopher Plummer. It's Michelle Williams, Christopher Plummer and Mark... He's like, he's, he's significant. So anyway, so what Natalie's saying is there's 22 scenes in the film. Now, apparently, Kevin Spacey... I went back and watched the original Kevin Spacey trailer. Kevin Spacey has all of this makeup stuck over his face. So it's like heavy prosthetics, which they don't use for Christopher Plummer. Right. Um, obviously, Ridley Scott, he storyboards everything. The crew had already done all of these shots before, so they had to go back, find the locations, get the period costumes, get all the vehicles and stuff to make it look like period. Uh, and then they had to just reshoot everything with Christopher Plummer. But it's almost like they lost the footage and then they had to go back and replicate it. Yeah, in six days as well. It's like being well, kind of rewind. It was, it was eight days with Christopher Plummer, ten days with Spacey. So okay. So, but it's um, for this film where they replaced with the lead. It's 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 great. What a movie! What a, it's, I think it's one of Ridley Scott's best films. I oh, really yeah. absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, they're all good in it. Uh, Michelle Williams is great. 
Um, she does this weird Catherine Hepburn kind of voice. And all the way through it, I'm going, why didn't she just use her own voice? Uh, and then you realise that, oh, God, she's doing a British accent. And on, on top of that, she's doing like this Catherine Hepburn accent. But she's not British. She's American. But because she's doing this Catherine Hepburn accent, you forget that she's not even British. You just feel like, oh, she's doing this. Oh, she's brilliant. What a wonderful actress. And um, Christopher Plummer is just brilliant. Um, yeah, and then I saw The Insider last night, which um, I never really wanted to watch. My mate was a big fan. I was very shocked to find out it was 1999. And, um, so before Gladiator, Russell Crowe. And it's Michael Mann directed this one. And I've always felt like Ridley Scott and Michael Mann are very similar to each other. But really, um, it's kind of like it's once removed again. You have Ridley Scott, who's probably the most human out of all of those directors. And then you have Michael Mann. And then you have Terence Malick, who's kind of far removed from everyone. Um, but yeah, anyway... Um, I really recommend them. What well, two minutes left? Well, what, what what have you seen this week, Nathaniel? <laughs> shall we do the uh, shall we do the uh, the 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 letters we get? Yeah, yeah, we've got three. So, guys, write some letters in, please, because this is looking pathetic. Um, uh, but have you seen all the money in the world? No, I've never seen it. I quite that that was my whole thing with it. I think I think my whole exact. I'd be watching it like that, just imagining. Oh, what, I wonder, what, did they reshoot this bit or is this bit all right? This bit's probably all right because he's not in it. This bit's probably all right because he's not in it. And I think I would watch it with that head I would say, th- I would say Rule of Plum is, if he's not in it, then, uh, <laughs> then they didn't it. was original, it. yeah, yeah. The rule, good Rule of Plum. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is weird, though, that they do over-the-shoulder stuff where you've got Christopher Plummer's face in it, side of his face, but it's on Michelle Williams. And you just hey. think... Just just shoot Michelle Williams. Don't shoot Christopher Plummer in this scene. You've only got eight days, guys. Just keep keep the camera on him. Do you know what I mean? Get on with it. Um, no, I do quite... I, I, I was sort of intrigued to see it. But, yeah, that was... My main reason to see it would almost be for that reason, really, to see how it was put together. It's good. It's a gorgeous-looking film. Like, it, like, it's not just like, oh, I'm just going through the motions here. He's made almost every single shot count. This is a really good thing. And it's got a good story and it's a thriller and, yeah, it's brilliant. And it's Christopher another... Plummer, like, it's, it's a great Christopher Plummer performance. I mean, and it's, I think that's one of the things about it, which, again, is a tribute to Christopher Plummer, that when that was announced, no one was like, him? That guy? It's totally like everyone goes, sure, he's a legitimate person you could put in that film and no one's going, oh, that feels like you've a bit less, a bit of a... A bit of a step down from Spacey. It just feels like that's classy. It's still it's still an acceptable movie, you know. It's classier in a way. I feel mm. like um, I feel like there's a lot of showboating when it comes to Kevin Spacey. Just talking yeah. about him as an actor, I feel like this is the Kevin Spacey part, and he comes in and he's like, you know, licking his lips and just sort of like going, "Yeah, I'm acting." Whereas Christopher Plummer is sort of like invisible as a performer. Yeah. Really. Um, uh, like he's absolutely, you know, you, you watch 20 Christopher Plummer films in two weeks and he's so completely different in every single film. You, it's impossible to see Captain Von Trapp in, in most of his performances. The closest you get is Sherlock Holmes, uh, in, um, uh, what's the Sherlock Holmes film? 
uh, murder by decree. Yeah. But then, you know, as I say, when you watch something like Silent Partner, it's impossible to see Von, you know, Captain Von Trapp in any of those performances. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a character, I can, you can absolutely see, it's the part that defined his whole career. But in actual fact, he was such an amazing actor that he, he barely ever replicated it, you know. And when you look at All the Money in the World, it's kind of, yeah, it's, again, it's, he's playing another shit, but it's, it's a... It's a new take on it. He's always bringing something fresh. He's brilliant. Brilliant. Anyway, here's some fan mail. Hedekin Nuts! Wow. I enjoy your show. <laughs> I'd like to go and watch a film on a, my iPad in the park. Or oh, would you recommend All the Money in the World? It's from Felix. Uh, hello, I'm really a fan of your show when you have Americans on. Can you have more, please? The accents are very nice to listen to. But they're nice, too. Thanks, Kirsty. Oh, we will, at some point. Hi, guys. I watched Wonder Woman 1984 last night. What's wrong with these emails this week? (laughs) These real emails? Are these real, Natalie? Hey, Nick and Nuts. I'm really a fan. I watched Wonder Woman 1984 last night and thought it was no good. It was my first superhero film and it might be my last. Are any of the many... I mean, this doesn't sound like Brian Johnson anymore. Uh, sorry, I've got a bit of a cold. <laughs> it's all right, Brian. I've been my last. Are any of them better than that? Help, cheers. Well, Wonder Woman 1 is better than, apparently... I've not seen Wonder Woman 1984. I mean, so yeah. I, I presume, I mean, please, seventy nine nine to watch something in my own fucking living room. Not if someone's not going to come along and vacuum it afterwards, you know. Um, uh, Wonder Woman 1, I think, is really good. I really enjoyed that, out of the recent batch. Um, the first two Christopher Dolan Batman films, and then... I tell you, I watched in the week Spider-Man Homecoming, and I've seen that three times now, and every time I watch it, I go, it's good, this. It is good. Spider-Man Homecoming, I think, is really, it, yeah, was really good. Like, considering it had to follow yeah. not only the Sam Raimi trilogy, but the failed Andrew Garfield, and you go, you're doing it again, guys, and you do it, and you go, oh, yeah, there's room for this, absolutely. Yeah. This is great. Um, what, what, aside from that, what's your favourite Marvel film, Matt? Uh, oh, what is my favourite? I like um, Captain America, the first Avenger, but I know a lot of people don't like it. I really like that film, the first one. But don't you feel like it's just Indiana Jones light? I think it's um, the Rocketeer done again, and I really like the Rocketeer, and I, I think I, I like that about it. I think it's really nice. Sure. Well, I get, I get, yeah. But like, that should I, all just be fun like that. I think that's my that's my sort of sweet spot for them, kind of fun action adventure. Yeah, I know someone that hasn't watched any Marvel films, and they watched um, uh, Endgame. And they say, this is rubbish. They haven't, they haven't introduced any of the characters. It just drops halfway in. It's just that you go, You've, what? <laughs> <laughs> You've skipped 24 films in a franchise, and now you're complaining that they don't know. Right, yeah. fine. It's like you were saying, that's, um, that's missing the first 20 parts of a TV show or whatever. You know, it's that kind of, I don't know what's happening. Complaining, complaining that they haven't introduced enough. Yeah, anyway, so... Um, yeah, I can take or leave a lot of a lot of superhero films. Um, yeah, that's how I feel about that. <laughs> All right then. Now, have you got anything to add? 
No, I'm good. Should we play a song? Okay. Get a guest on. Let's play, play a song and get a guest on. and the Daniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we are back. We're back live. We're not live. Uh, we're pre-recorded on a Wednesday, but we're as live uh, in our... Uh, in the studio, we're not in the studio. I'm in my I'm in my office, and that is in his washroom. And uh, we're joined now by uh, uh, we're joined now by motivational speaker, author, uh, and uh, mouth artist uh, uh, Henry Fraser. So here we are in uh, fan club land. How are you doing, Henry? Are you right? I'm I'm very good, thank you. I'm very good. How are you guys? Pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. We're getting used to it. And you're 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 just near Watford currently. Yeah, yeah. At my parents' house still. Um, yeah, just getting around in my parents' study, trying to just spend time trying to find a good Zoom background, and this ends up as a good one, which works well for radio, I guess. Yeah. Is that not the background itself? I know this is, but I had to move around the house a few times. Oh right, okay. I thought I thought you've created one that looks just appears to be a, a quite genuine looking background. I wish I was that creative. <laughs> but you are. But you are, you are creative. a creative person. Yeah, not 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 that no, not that much. Maybe one day. <laughs> and for people that don't know you, do you want to tell us your story, or is that a too big a question? Um. Yeah, I'm. I mean, yeah, I mean, my story, I guess, uh, starts. Uh, back in 2009, um, I was 17 years old, went on a holiday with a group of mates to celebrate the end of our exams. Um, and we went down to uh, the Algarve in Portugal, a week away there for my, my first independent holiday away. And, you know, I was muck around on the beach one day, fifth day of a holiday, boiling hot, decided to go pour off in the water, kind of as I had done the previous days of that holiday. But just different part of the beach this time. And where I've kind of run into the sea to what I thought was a good depth, um, to just uh, dive forward and basically pull my head on a sandbank. And, yeah, from that moment, everything in my life just completely, completely changed. So I opened my eyes, expecting to get up, just kind of stand up, walk out the water, go join my mates back on the beach. But I opened my eyes, just completely unable to move floating in the sea, just kind of staring through this crystal clear water at my arms, just kind of dangling in front of me, just fearing for my life in that moment, to be honest. Um, and there, from there, it was, I was dragged out onto the beach by a couple of my mates, and I was airlifted to hospital in Lisbon, kind of a few weeks there with quite a few health issues and surgeries um, to basically realign my neck because... Turns out I dislocated one of the vertebrae in my neck, which subsequently crushed the spinal cord, causing my paralysis. Um, from then, was completely unable to move. Now is I'm only able to move from the, from the top of my shoulders up. Um, and then, yeah, from there, it was then flown back to England after surgeries, where I spent the next six, just over six months, trying to get as thin and healthy as possible. And that was, I guess, the start of start of this kind of life I've got now. 
And is it something, I mean, I guess it's, that's a story you must have told countless times. Has it become something that you're, um, you're very comfortable talking about? Or has it always been? Or is it something, I say that, or is it something that's difficult to revisit? I mean, now it's completely, um, yeah, it's, it's fine for me. It's quite early on. So I think within, I guess, 10 months of the accident happening, I decided to kind of share my story on my website on a website I had at the time. Um, and I basically, I was at the time I was using um, speech recognition software on my laptop. So I was saying everything out loud whilst it was obviously the words coming up. And that was massively kind of cathartic for me to just say it. And whilst I was saying those things out loud, it was emotional for me at the time. And I think dealing with those feelings quite early on was a big, um, I think kind of a big part of Kind of the healing process mm-hmm. for me allowed it really helped me to move on um much quicker than i guess kind of like i thought i would and so yeah so now it's kind of yeah just it's just kind of something that happens to me i think you seem to have this huge kind of resilience is that something you would have thought about yourself before the accident oh uh, god no not at all um kind of the person i'm now and the person i was before my accident are they're two kind of completely very different people. Um, I used to be so kind of utterly terrified of any any situation that posed any kind of an issue or any sign of something going wrong. I'd find an excuse not to do it. I'd find ways of kind of worm me out of something or, yeah, I don't. Just don't, I used to kind of worry a lot, have a lot of angst in situations. I, this kind of way of dealing with problems is something I kind of really wish I did have before Max and it definitely would have, would have helped me, I guess, kind of do a lot more with kind of the opportunities I had at the time and push myself to kind of be better, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, kind of it's weird in a way that the accident's kind of led me to being kind of a much more yeah, resilient person, a much more, I don't know, I guess, much happier person, to be honest. And is that like an element of like mindfulness, to use that word? Uh, is that like... You think that's part of it that you've kind of had this sort of quiet time to reflect and you yeah and i think definitely helps i feel i'm quite reflective kind of in myself and i think about things a lot um kind of at night sometimes if i kind of reflect on the day that's been and what's happened and i like to kind of think about what's happened and how i've dealt with situations and whether i could have dealt with them better and i kind of try to kind of iron out everything in my head before i go to sleep and it helps me sleep much clearer. Um, and these are just kind of coping mechanisms that I've worked out for myself along the way, just things that you know, I just work best for me, I guess. Mm. But you weren't, I mean, you you're talking about yourself before the accident, but again, you were like very successful and you were uh, a rugby player. Was that school level or, or a kind of county level? or? Yeah, um, I was in the Saracens Academy at the time. I, was, I played kind of London, South East England rugby it had gone well. Um, I mean, I definitely could have done more and should have done more with it. I'm not saying like I could have gone on to be pro. I definitely couldn't sort of. I had a brother who was a pro, and I kind of saw everything it took to to make it and kind of sacrifice, and that was wasn't for me. Um, but I definitely could have done more and should have done more with kind of what I had. And then after after that, what what came next for you? Was that the sort of motivational speaking or the books, or was that the artwork? It was the the motivational speaking was the um, was the first thing. Um, 
So after my accident, 13 months after the accident, I returned to school and um, just completed my final year, so completed my A-levels. And then kind of after that, I guess I had two, three years where I wasn't really sure what I was doing. Um, I guess I was just trying to get to kind of my new way of life out in the real world again. Um, and I started to work with Saracens in the um, communications department and the CEO there at the time sat down with me and asked me, I'd, I'd ever thought about sharing my story before because he had read kind of what I'd written on my website and things. I had started to think about it, but public speaking is the thing that before my accident terrified me more than anything in the world. It was, sure. it was horrible. Like I used to, uh, yeah, I mean, I asked me to even talk about how nervous it made me before my accident. But, um, I thought, you know, this new kind of, I guess, mindset I had, thinking about situations and thinking about outcomes and trying to think about positive outcomes rather than negative ones. I decided to mm-hmm. agree to it and say, yeah. And so I worked with the um, psychologist at the uh, Saracens at the time to kind of work on a script, basically. And we spent six months writing this thing. And we just took everything off my website, kind of obviously crossed out all the waffle that I'd chucked in. Um, and we just tried to get the best messages out. And um, it was a, that was quite a process. And I think at the time I agreed to it, at the very start, we agreed a date. Um, six months further on that I was going to give a talk to the Saracens first team and I agreed today because six months seemed like miles away and I was in my head I kept thinking (laughs) something's going to happen something will get me out of it and then a week before I suddenly realised oh like oh this is a oh this is actually happening this is a thing now I've got to I've got to kind of commit to it properly and that week I was I was a wreck I was all over the shop I kind of wasn't talking to anyone at home. Spent a lot of my time in my room just reading the, the talk over and over again. Almost trying to memorize the entire half hour talk. And I was just, yeah, I guess I was just miserable, probably rude to my family. Probably just been a bit of a kind of dick to my family, to be honest. Um, and the day of the talk, I remember getting Saracens. And I just, I was sitting with my brother, players having lunch, and my teeth were chattering. I was so nervous. I was getting shivers and things, and I was just. Ugh. But the moment I started, so what, was, what what was what was the event? Was it was it like a dinner or? Oh no! So it's just um, so Saracens would do this thing where they just get outside speakers to come in and share their stories with the players as mm-hmm. a kind of um, like thing away from rugby. So they're not thinking about rugby all the time, even when out at the club when they're training during the day. They kind of it's a nice kind of hour distraction for them where they can look focus on something different. And that sure. that we get they'd ask me to to do it. And I guess yeah, it was a big one big first up um gig for me, I guess. Um but yeah, the moment I got started it was fine. And the moment I finished I had this kind of just almost like adrenaline rush. This kind of you feeling of euphoria that I'd, I'd never I'd never ever felt before. Um and in that, I guess after that, I just kept thinking about all like those times and I'd got out of it before when I was younger. The times I kind of was worried more about the talk rather than preparing properly for it, rather than kind of going through the practical steps and, and all those things. And it's something that even now when I give talks, when I go out, I still get nervous beforehand. Um, and it's still kind of, I get a bit edgy sometimes. But the moment I start, I keep thinking about that feeling I had and at the end of it, that joy I'm going to feel and that relief and that rush and 
those things I'm thinking about now rather than the negative um, outcomes. And do you still get that rush now? Or is that something which, which you're just chasing the first, the first time again? Yeah, I'm going to get that <laughs> hit again, isn't it? Uh, but yes, um, no, I do definitely. At the end of each one is definitely that kind of, yeah, it definitely, I still get that, definitely a peak at some point at the end. And it's nice. Oh, it's weird. I always get bizarrely hungry after a tour, which I'm not sure what that feeling is connected to or why that happens, but I always have to stop off at a fetch station on the way home to refuel on me. I get that. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, but I can't, I can't eat the day of having to do, you know, because me and Nat are comedians, mm. and I can't eat the day before the, the gig. And then afterwards, you end up, yeah, stopping off at a petrol station and just eating pasties. Oh, but, um, yes. but that's, that's that's how it goes. But that's that's incredible. I mean, I I still get so nervous about doing gigs and public speaking. Um, yeah, I think that that's a really positive way of looking at it in terms of focusing on the reward at the end of it. That's that. I mean, I've been doing this for fifteen years, and I and I never approached it like that i think as well um, a lot of time nerves are quite similar to excitement it's a similar it's a similar thing your body's doing and your kind of emotions are doing although i think i think in my case it probably is more nerves should be <laughs> ought to be, ought yeah. to be. <laughs> i think they are definitely they kind of definitely kind of touch each other those two things one of the things i do to kind of help reduce nerves but i i have a lot of kind of routines in my life um and i the day I have a talk, I have the same routine. No matter where I'm going to give me a talk, I'll have the same routine in the lead up to that talk. I'll almost wear exactly the same stuff. I'll have the exact same breakfast. I'll make sure, kind of, the night before, make sure I've got everything ready at the same time. And it just, that helps settle me big time. Mm. Yeah. It's good. Do you, and so do you also, is that, is that almost that superstition or is that practical? Oh, no, it's just a practical thing for me. I have to kind of feel like if those things are safe, then I'm more prepared if something does go wrong that I can yeah. just deal with it straight off. So was that what led to the books? Yeah, well, the books came off the tour, um, off the back. Um, a literary agent watched it. Um, Saracen's post online, and he saw it on Twitter, I think he was, and... He approached me and said, I had a thought about writing a book, and obviously he said no. Um, <laughs> and then we spent, I guess, met a few times with him, and he convinced me to do it, and I thought, okay, why not again? Just see what happens. And, yeah, that, again, was quite a process. That was, again, something I never thought I'd ever do in my life, but it just it just happened, I guess. <laughs> And how close was that to the, the first book? Was it close in a way to what the, your motivational speaking was? Was it almost like a, a written version of that talk you would give? Uh, pretty much, yeah. It's, the main focus of the book is my is from the accident through... So two thousand of the book, yes. The ac- day the accident happened to, I guess, the moment I left hospital. And then talking, then obviously at the end, talking about things that I'm doing now and post that. There's kind of so many, I guess, points in that six months, six and a half months I had in hospital that we kind of expand on and talk about you know, things about um, 
obviously acceptance and kind of focus on progress and the little things and uh, gratitude and we can kind of really sing those up to kind of big moments in those uh, in my time in hospital. And what's the what's the process of writing a book? Um, uh, how do you um, how do you go through uh, that period and work out what's uh, what's worth talking about and what's what you should leave out? That was the um, yeah. Well, I mean that that was part of the part of the fun of it. Well, part of the and tricky side of it is because um, I mean I was. We basically spent a lot of time just recording me talking about what happened was the start. And then from there, trying to kind of bring down kind of the other stories. And then we're kind of having to expand and obviously talk to my friends and family that were part of that journey with me at the time and still are part of a huge part of my life. And it was fun talking to them and hearing kind of their side of things and bringing that into the, into the book as well and trying to get all those feelings. And it was tough and, to be honest, trying to, trying to expand it to book was, was, I guess, was a bit tricky. We did kind of have to kind of veer off slightly at times into kind of other other topics just to... Well, Bex, if you're doing a 30-minute th- talk, how, yeah. what's the word count on that? Is that your know, first thing? <laughs> yeah, you know, a few thousand words, I guess, whereas now it's kind of having to get at least 10 times that. And, yeah, that was, a, that, that was I guess, the trickiest part of the bit of it probably enjoyed at least about it trying to expand something into was there you just going what what else can i put in what else can i throw yeah. into this but <laughs> it's keep adding to the fire and watching the publishers kind of take this out again <laughs> and when once you've written one book is it does it was it easier writing the second one or was that even harder um i, I enjoyed it was harder but i oddly enjoyed it more because the first one was kind of retelling the story that something I'm so used to. Um, whereas the second one was much more much more about kind of my way of thinking and how I deal with dealt with those times then in a much kind of deeper, more more philosophical way. Um does much more that was fun having to think about that and kind of real dial back into what I was thinking in those times and kind of the the darkest, deepest moments, um, and expand on those again, and try again, try and drag it out into a book. Um, <laughs> and that second book is little big things, and you're saying that's about the power of acceptance and positive me- mental attitude. Yeah, oh, but, the, the, sorry, got... the, the second one is the power power in you. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the first one's the little big things. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, but when you talk about acceptance, I guess hmm. this year's been tricky for lots of people in, I guess, a far less dramatic way than your life's been in the last kind of 12 years. But I guess people are going through challenges now. Do you think acceptance is more difficult during something like the pandemic where it feels like it's changing every day? Or do you think do you think it's best to kind of accept things on a day-to-day basis? Me and Nick were just talking about different ways how we kind of cope with the idea of lockdown. Yeah, and it's... And it's a tricky one. I think, um, I mean, it's obviously been a kind of very odd time for, for all of us. And I think um, part of that when it comes to acceptance in situations like this is to 
is to kind of reduce it down. It's not to, it's kind of just kind of sit back and say, okay, well, this, we know this has happened. There's, you kind of have to tell yourself there's nothing you can do to change it. And you have to come, tell, you have to tell yourself that. And there's times where, you know, I, I to keep telling myself, there's things that annoy me. I have to say, well, I can't, can't change it because I've got to accept it and then find kind of ways around that and ways of kind of things that make me happy, I guess. And part of this, mm. when this whole, when the whole, when we first went to lockdown, my, part of my thing was, well, okay, I sat back and thought, well, I can't change what's happened. And one of the things I decided early on not to do was to focus on when this thing might end. I never once have thought about, well, apart from now that I've had the first vaccine jab, I've not thought about kind of that end goal, what, when we might all be able to meet up again, do those th things we used to do. It's, I started to take each kind of week at a time, each, every few days. And then I tried to take each single day at a time and not think more about that day ahead of me and think, not think more about kind of the things in that day that are going to make me happy. And I just reduce it down to kind of minuscule moments of enjoying a cup of tea or early on in the first lockdown, sitting outside in the sun, sitting up, enjoying the warm weather, watching a TV show, kind of watch a thousand times over and over again. And those are things that that's how I've dealt with all of this. And, um, and I think when I talk about kind of acceptance about kind of dealing with things, it always comes back down to kind of reducing things down in our lives to to the little things, um, whether it's progress, joy, um, moments, things like that. It's just embracing kind of those things. Mm. I think your you and Nick seem to have much more in common. Yeah. You've basically said what Nick said, which has annoyed me. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I mean. I kind of wish you'd said the opposite, to be honest. But uh... no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling incredibly smug right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, so you're, um, you've become like a mouth artist. So you paint using your mouth. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about. So that um, started in uh, 2015, Jan 2015, and I had a, um, I had a on my back. <laughs> to the consequence of a spinal cord injury. Um, kind of lack of movement and blood flow in the body means skin kind of becomes vulnerable to um, sores and things. And because of that, I was stuck in bed. Um, I had to heal. And the first week I was in bed, um, I just had to lie on my side, kind of three hours on one side of my body, kind of get someone to roll me onto my other side and let my back hair. Second week I was able to sit up for kind of an hour or two hours in the day in bed. And I was just mucking around on my iPad. And I can kind of have an iPad on some cushion on my lap. And I just have a mouse stick with a stylus taped on the end and I touch screen the iPad. And it's how I type and kind of do all those things. And I started to find this really basic drawing app that I could kind of play around with. And I just started from there. And it was kind of the first few things I did were so basic, very linear things, not nothing much to them, but I just really enjoyed it. It's a really nice distraction in my day to come to that hour, I, two hours I could sit up, I was going to draw and do nothing else and just sit there and enjoy that. That was my kind of happy moment of the day. And then when I was able to get out of bed a few weeks later, I moved into actually drawing with pencils and then, yes, a few months after that, I actually started painting. And yeah, it's been kind of a, I guess, what, six years now with it. It's kind of been a bit 
bit of a crazy time with it, to be honest. Were, were you artistic? Were you artistic before you started? Uh, before you started drawing and painting? So when I was young, um, I really enjoyed um, art. I, I always enjoyed making stuff when I was young. Always enjoyed. I uh, remember, so I'm one of four brothers. And before my younger brother came along, my older two brothers were, they're only 18 months apart, and they're very close. And they'd always be out in the garden, kind of rough and tumble and doing all those things. And I, that wasn't, that wasn't my thing when I was a young boy. My thing was sitting inside by myself, playing with my toys, and mostly to be honest, playing with Duplo and just building stuff and making things and kind of creating mm-hmm. things that I just enjoyed kind of making. And then I started drawing and painting. When I was at school, I really loved it. But then I guess as I got to GCSE, um, uh, my rugby was always going quite well at the time, which meant that was taking up a lot of my time. And doing art GCSE and S-level and A-level, thing, they take up a huge amount of time as well. And I'd rather be, a, that's, then I'd, I'd rather be in the gym or outside or playing rugby and kind of being active. And so art became this kind of annoying thing, this annoying kind of, weird thing that followed me around, tugging me the whole time, just pulling at me. And I, I really fell out of love with it completely. And I guess kind of without the action, I wouldn't have kind of been taken back in that kind of full circle to that same kind of joy I had when I was that young kid. Do you mean that, do you mean that you sort of like neglected art and, um, and it would sort of like annoy you in the sense that it would be there saying, "Hey, you're good at me. Why? Why aren't you? Why aren't you doing? Why aren't you doing art? Why aren't you drawing?" Yeah, I guess it's yeah. It's just more came yeah a hassle for me rather than joy. It was something that I just kind of I had to do because I was part of my GCSEs. Sure. And it was just like I just turn up to the lessons and it's just more like a tick box exercise at that point rather than something that I was giving my heart. To and then, yeah, it wasn't kind of yeah, it was just there. <laughs> I think, but I think that GCSEs sometimes have a have a way of doing that. I I was very artistic. I used to draw and I used to paint when I was growing up, and then I think A level sort of knocked it out of me. Where I liked the actual process of drawing, but it was all of the coursework that yeah. was kind of like you you don't just draw the picture. You tell people what the picture you're going to draw is and then you plan the picture and then you do and then and I always like to just draw the picture so I sort of fell out of love with art and it was only like much later on like maybe even in lockdown that I've started being kind of that sort of creative I think yeah. sometimes sometimes if you've got interests and in sort of like well with you it was rugby but with me it was kind of like um, uh, maybe stand up you kind of like get pulled between your different interests. Yeah. I, I always feel incredibly guilty that I haven't, that I didn't pursue art. Um, but why? Why, why? why the guilt? Why the guilt? Because I just feel like, I guess it's because my dad is still, um, uh, my dad somehow manages to have the time to uh, play guitar, raise a family, you know, paint pictures, do the recycling, plant trees, <laughs> You know, uh, so my dad does, you know, does woodwork and all this other stuff, and it's kind of like I'm getting into woodwork and um, being a bit more creative. But I always feel very stretched between my allegiances to what I could focus on as a career and what I could focus on as a hobby. And I guess my sometimes 
sometimes hobbies fade into the distance and you and you don't really see the the benefit of them but i guess art uh, when you um when you create stuff it's not just the fact that um it's something to do it's therapeutic at the same time yeah and um yeah i guess things like art especially is kind of you can i guess lose yourself and when you get into something something creative you can kind of lose yourself you know kind of time doesn't exist in that moment it's just sit there for kind of a few hours and it just flies by and yeah i mean i i really enjoy it because yeah it's i can be kind of in my own world just there by myself not without any other anyone else around me because every mm. every part of my life i always need kind of other people near me or kind of just put close by to, whether it's i need a drink or food or whatever kind of the constant care but when i'm at me it's just me in my own head probably listening to Harry Potter audiobook or something, just kind of whiling away the time. As a, oh, no, I was going to say, as a sort of skill level, would you say you're better than you were at school at, at painting now? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, no, yes, I am, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't this another example of your positive mental attitude? You switched. Yeah, yeah, I definitely am, actually. Um, <laughs> um, and, and, and you're painting that, so it is with... You're not painting on an iPad anymore. You're painting on canvases, right? And you're with, with paints. And what kind, of, what kind of paints do you use? Um, I use a paint called gouache. And it's uh, mm -hmm. halfway between... I guess halfway between acrylic and watercolour. Um, right, OK. And it's... And again, it's something that I just kind of the way my process has gone is just things that I've just stumbled across that have seemed to kind of, I guess, work out well for, for what I do and kind of run with it. I don't think I use them the right way. I definitely don't use them on the right surfaces and things I'm meant to, but it kind of, I quite enjoy that because it means it's kind of my own thing. It's not something that I've been influenced by anything else. It's just me. Mm -hmm. Um, and is it? Is, do you find it even like tiring on your neck, or is your or are your muscles in your neck so strong now that you don't? Because I'd imagine just because like the artwork and the artwork you do. I mean, it's we're, we're on radio now, so it's not a visual medium. But I kind of urge people to kind of Google it and take a look at it. But because it, a lot of this is really kind of intricate work, isn't it? It's small, it's tiny movements you must be making to kind of create these images, um, and it feels like it would actually have. Um, <clears throat> It, it would put a lot of pressure on your neck almost to move ever so slightly and doing these tiny drawings. It, it was, I mean, at the start, it was, um, I guess because I wasn't kind of confident in my own ability and what I could do, it was, a, it did take quite a heavy toll on kind of the back, down the back of my neck, especially. Um, and I painted this picture of Everest, um, I think it was in 2016. Is that uh, the one that's on the front of your book? Yeah. And it's actually the reason why I chose it um, for the book, because of why when I painted it, it, I think I did five days in a row. I think four, I did four straight hours each day. And I, by kind of halfway through the fourth day, I was halfway through Thursday, I was feeling tired. But I just really wanted to finish it. I was like, in my head, I need to get this done. I want to get it done. I've started it. I didn't want to rest. I just wanted to do it. And by the end of the fifth day, I woke up on Saturday and my neck was in 
pieces. It was just like, it was hurting so much, it was tight. And I was kind of mm. spent the next, kind of most of the next day in bed because I mean, I could sit back and then have to kind of hold my head too much and have to do those things. And because I wasn't confident, like, it's not a huge painting and it's not kind of wildly detailed, but because I was focusing so much on the movements and kind of the black shadows in it, especially, it really wrote me. I had to learn a, a lesson that day to say, like, I need a rest. I need it's tight. It's okay to say, like, no, sit back and come back to another time. I don't have to do it all straight away. Kind of being tired is fine. And so now I, most out, I'll do most three hours a day. I won't do more than three days in a row. And I found I've just I enjoy it far more. Like mm-hmm. that. I, I'm kind of taking those breaks, and it means that I can come back to a few days later, kind of fresh eyes and find something new. And yeah. Do something different, and yeah, it was. Um, so now when I'm doing things, it's far more enjoyable. I can attack it much more, with much more energy to do it. It's kind of a much much happier place for me. And I guess even from a health perspective, that's probably encouraged, right? It's like don't do it all the time. It's gonna, you might not do yourself any good. Yeah, and it's something that I've carried from then, kind of carried through other parts of my life. Um, kind of that need for rest is vital for all of us. Kind of, going full blast the whole time isn't healthy at all. Um, mm-hmm. I have to really, um, obviously fatigue for me is a big thing. And if I go from too hard, work too much, you know, weak exercise too much, then it can kind of send me back more days than kind of I've worked. And so, yeah, I need, we all need a rest. We all need to take time to just breathe and relax and chill. Have you been able to continue to paint and be creative um, during lockdown? Or have you have you noticed there's been... I know that... Because I write and uh, I make music and, you know, all this other stuff, and I found lockdown has really sort of, like, had a negative effect on how much I've been able to do. And so mentally you're very hard on yourself because you, you're, not, you're not doing the stuff that you, you feel like you're meant to be doing. Have you had any kind of like found any impact on it, or has it actually helped in a way? Um, in a way, in a way, it has actually been helped me, and I think I've actually done my best pieces um, since lockdown started. Um, because in the build-up, kind of six months before lockdown, it was a lot of focus on finishing kind of the final edits on the book. It was a lot of kind of working out. For the press, the PR stuff we're going to do. And it was just a lot of stress and I hadn't painted for probably six months up until that point. And the moment lockdown happened, when everything else around me just stopped, I could just sit in my easel and just relax and be there and kind of just attack it with kind of a new, I guess, new sense of creativity, a new sense of kind of wanting to actually do that and that be my only thing, not having to worry about um, kind of interviews coming up that I was going to have to do with the book, not having to worry about kind of getting up really early to do kind of early TV bits, not I'm just not going to plan anything really, um, and it's definitely helped me. I've, and I thought in lockdown, I kind of thought work on my home doing stuff, may as well try different things, try out kind of new new color schemes, new kind of techniques and things. And yes, yeah, for me, I've been lucky that it's it's worked out well for me. Is that because painting is never, never feels like work for you? 
Does it always feel like an escape? Um, I guess in a way, when it's early on, when I started, I was taking commissions and things, and that always felt like work. That felt like I was, um, you know, I had to do it. I knew it was obviously a way to earn money. Um, but, you know, they were quite boring, <laughs> most of them. Uh, they were quite tough because I wasn't, it wasn't something I picked, it wasn't something that I yeah. wanted to commit myself to. It was just, again, it was like, I guess, oh, early on, it was just there. It was just something I had to do. Whereas now, it's all things that I want to do and things that I'm kind of happy doing. Um, so, yeah, they always make me happy. And if I'm kind of nearly very happy at the end of it, of the final piece, then then I then I know it's kind of been a good been a good few days. Mm-hmm. And so you've you've recently made this sort of torch painting, <laughs> which is for uh, purple bricks. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so I was um, asked for purple bricks to create the this image for this home support campaign they're doing. Obviously, with the Olympics in Tokyo um, this year, people won't be able to travel. Um, so it's about kind of building excitement here and trying to do, kind of, I guess, stuff for the athletes to kind of keep them, I guess, motivated or do something. You know, it's going to be very tough for them out there. And, yeah, when they ask they want something, I guess, to kind of sing, have a kind of symbol, sing, sorry, kind of symbolise the Olympics and the Olympic spirit and things. And I decided to paint of the... Uh, the torch, the Olympic flame, because the one thing that goes around normally, obviously, starts in Athens when they build up to Olympics and travels travels around the world and finishes at the host games. And in 2012 in the UK, when it was here, travel around the whole country is something that the whole world sees that nations are kind of part of. It's definitely a coming together moment. That's why I chose it. And yeah, again, that was it's a whole new process for me, something I've never done before. I've never been part of a campaign or anything like that. So I really had to think about it, spend a lot of time kind of doing primarily drawings on my iPad and go through loads of ideas. And there was one thing that kept coming back to me. So did you sort of have to pitch pitch it to them and say, like, I was thinking about doing like it like this? Or did you basically have free reign to do whatever you wanted? They kind of gave us, a, gave us free reign in as free as that word can be in this situation, I guess. Uh, sure. <laughs> there were quite a few things that we couldn't include. Uh, quite a few, and then it kind of, when they had it, they had kind of, then had to go to Steam GB and make sure there was nothing wrong with it. It weren't infringing on anything. Um, there was nothing controversial. You weren't going to do anything that was going <laughs> to... Uh, luckily, I'd say I'm probably the least controversial person ever. Quite <laughs> vanilla, I'd say. Uh, but... Yeah, doing it. When I pitched the idea to them what I wanted to do, um, luckily they're on board straight away, which, last, thank God, because I didn't have any other ideas to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this idea. Yeah. Oh, we like that one. Great. Well, I won't tell you any of my other ones then. We'll, we'll <laughs> leave that. Uh, yeah. We'll just leave that there. to me. Yeah, yeah. I'll just get on with this one. If, you, if that's what you want. No, don't worry. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just do this one. <laughs> And what what are your thoughts on the um, 2021 Olympics? Because it's going to be a really odd one. And, I mean, I guess at the minute it feels like it's happening. 
So were they delayed from last year? Yeah. So it's yeah. meant to be the 2020 Olympics. Then now it's 2021 Olympics. Does that mean the next Olympics are going to be in 2024? Have all of the Olympics been nudged up a year, or is it going to go to 2024 Olympics? That is a very good question. I don't know. I'm getting ahead of myself as well. This I mean, is the yeah, future. I mean, no, I mean, that is, that is I mean, because I guess in the past when they've delayed Olympics, they've early on, or sporting events, then they kind of, they have adjusted years, but I don't know. Maybe they'll just power through. It felt like we had a really good system with the even numbers. 2012, 2016, 2020, you know, it's good. And now it's like nudged up one. And when you look at all of the Olympics from the beginning of time, from the very first one, I mean, when was the first one? In zero. So then it was four and then eight and then 12. And now it's nudged up one. It's not going to make sense on paper. I think the first one was the one with asterisks. I think that was the first one. I'm pretty sure that was his. That was the original one. I think it was around then. I've, it was around Asterix well, time. It sounds. It sounds right. Yeah, I think. I think that's right. I think that's. I think that's. Don't look it up, but I think the, it's right. But what about the Winter Olympics? The Winter Olympics are every, aren't they? In the two years in between, or is that the World Cup? <laughs> the, so oh the, my God! Yeah, the World Cup is. Yeah, the World Cup is between. There you got Euro. So well, it's a lot of sport, isn't it? So when are the Winter Olympics? Are the Winter Olympics the following winter after the Olympics? Um, Have we no, had yeah, the they winter? Are, they, are, they are between. <laughs> no, they are, they are, I think they are in between the right. Olympics. I think they used to be the same year, back in the old days, I think. Okay. Um, but now it is, yeah. And um, so like, uh, do you have any thought... Oh, go on. Well, I was just saying, we're ahead. I'm like, I've pushed it ahead because I'm, I've been stressed out about what's happening with the Olympics. <laughs> but what are your thoughts about the Olympics this year? I mean, how do you think it's all going to work? I don't. It's, I mean, I assume in Japan they'll have some fans in the stadium. But, I mean, they've been, I guess they've kind of handled things pretty well over there. They've, they seem to be quite on it. Um, so I assume they'll have some, but... I assume it'd be distancing the stadium. There'll be something going on, but yeah, for the athletes, it's going to be bizarre. Being the Olympic Village, I don't think will be what it um, what it normally is. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but, but this is also this is also a bit of an assumption because of your rugby connections. But are you even into the Olympics? Oh, I, I mean, God, yes, absolutely. Um, I've grown up in possibly the most competitive household in the world. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's when me and my brothers are together, it is anything we did growing up, everything we do now is some form of competition. The arguments we still have over who's the best sportsman or who's the fastest or who's this and who's, is, is quite something. And I'm sure it'd be a therapist's wet dream to sit down with us and go through it all and discuss these things because there is a, well, it is, it's quite something. Um, Who's the yeah. best painter? Oh, I mean, do we really? Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I, di- I didn't say it was me, but well, I mean, we, we know. can we can assume assume as much. 
My, my brother, <laughs> just, my brother's. Just a, say it's you. Just say it's you. I'll say it's me. Oh yeah, okay, me. <laughs> then, they'll listen to me, and I'm sure I get a message from one of them questioning it. <laughs> it's been really great talking to you. But, but and part of your thing is that you do have this sort of very pe- po- uh, positive mental attitude. How often, though, are you negative? I'm surrounded by negative thoughts. Are these things you push aside, or are these? Is this the side of you that's like, it's not. It's it's almost pointless. You don't talk about it, or or are you constantly consumed with negative thoughts all the time? Or, um, to be honest, no. I um, so when I do have, I guess, negative thoughts. I mean, there's nothing about my situation that ever gets me down or unhappy or anything like that um i guess i had the same frustrations that we all have in our day-to-day lives mm-hmm. um but then i guess i just i always when i kind of get frustrated or annoyed i always ask myself the question why why am i feeling this way what's making me feel this way and i always come out with two i always make sure i have kind of two options that the outcome of that question and if the answer is something that I know I can fix and can change, or I kind of need to talk to someone about something or tell someone like they're doing something wrong, then I'll do it and we'll just discuss it and kind of have it out. And if it's something that I can't change that's annoyed me, then I just tell myself, sometimes out loud, most of the time in my head, tell myself, well, I can't change it, I've got to just accept it and move on. And it's kind of a question that I think it's just kind of become part of my kind of psyche now. I don't think about it so much. It's kind of a subconscious thing as part, as are most things kind of my way of dealing with things now. Um, But those things were there at the start that I had to kind of keep telling myself, having this conversation with myself and reminding myself of the positive things and doing things, I guess, that made me happy and finding joy in the little things and kind of having that patience with myself. And it's really, really important in any situation that people go through anything that any struggle that people have is to have patience these things don't happen overnight they don't change kind of a click of fingers you have to keep working at it but the rewards when you can work at it are huge and, and it's worth the time and the effort yeah yeah well that's uh that's put me in my place i mean i'm, I'm, I'm always I've always got things like I just sort of find a problem with, but even like everyday frustrations, I just find mm. I can be overwhelmed by quite small things. And and, t- and especially now it feels like everything's under a microscope, but it certainly kind of puts yeah. things into perspective. Yeah. And I think finding, again, going back to finding those small joys, kind of joys in the mundane and the things that most people, that most people kind of overlook every day. We all want those kind of big joys, those big things to make us happy. And when we think about that, it's so easy to miss the little joys that surround us each and every day. And the moment you start recognising that, the moment your baseline of joy is a cup of tea, is watching your favourite show, suddenly you realise you're surrounded by these things. And then those bigger joys are even greater than you kind of ever realised. Oh, (laughs) Wow. That's good. And you've also uh, you've also <laughs> reminded us by talking about favourite shows of the format of our show that we've uh, failed to. Uh... So we've run. Yeah, we've run. We've run out of time. 
Man of Time, but your favourite films are Whiplash, Jane Grandstand, and Thor Ragnarok. And your favourite song is Under the Ridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. Great choices. Played it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've uh, yeah, we've come to the, we've sort of come into the end. We've got we've got time to play uh, the world famous uh, game Better or Worse. So Henry, uh, I'm gonna. Ha- I'm sorry about this, but I'm gonna hand you over to Nathaniel now. Wow, uh, that's uh, rude. <laughs> To, to play the game and uh, we'll get through it together. Uh, Daniel, better or worse? <laughs> uh, Henry, this game is called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the p- person before, based entirely on my opinion to score points. Okay, beginning with oh. Kiefer Sutherland. Is Donald Sutherland, his dad, better or worse than Kiefer Sutherland? Better. Better, yeah. Better. Donald Glover, better or worse than Donald Sutherland? Better. Worse. Worse, he's worse. Ah. Um, Donald Trump, better or worse <laughs> than Donald Glover? Sorry, who? Donald Trump. Yeah. Oh, worse, yeah. <laughs> worse, yeah. It was nice he said who. It's nice that he's gone away, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy, I remember him. Um, <laughs> Donald Duck. Donald Duck, better or worse than Donald Trump? Better. 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 Daffy Duck, better or worse than Donald Duck? Better. Better. Scarlett Johansson, better or worse than Daffy Duck? Better. Worse. Black Widow and the Marvel films, I mean. <laughs> sure. But he's Daffy Duck. He's Daffy Duck, mate. Oh, come he's on. He's been around a lot longer. Come on, he's, he's, done a lot more he's Daffy him. Duck. He's Daffy Duck. Um, I, like, I like Scarlett Johansson. She's a high card. But she's not Daffy Duck. Um, <laughs> Sharon Stone, better or worse than Scarlett Johansson? Worse. Oh, worse. Worse, thank you. Sharon Osbourne, better or worse than Sharon Stone? Worse. Worse? I don't worse, know. I think. I don't, yeah. Just my opinion. Um, <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, better or worse than Sharon Osbourne? Better. Better. And Gwyneth Paltrow, better or worse than Ozzy worse. Osbourne? Worse. worse. Correct. That's a good. That's going to be a high one, I think. Eight. You got an eight. You got You've an eight. Well. You've done well. Um, well, okay. So an eight, an eight is 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 pretty good. It's, uh, well, well, well it's where do I rank? Well, where, I mean, well, so I've got an eight, which means. Well, well, go on. I was saying I was competitive earlier. I'd like to know. I know. Well, you're going to be. Okay, well, so you you got an eight, which means you're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, John Coleshaw, Jason Manford, Jace Cadeni with ten, David Baddiel, Ken Chang, Mike Drucker, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with nine. But you are as good as Matthew Crosby, Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn, David Hepworth, Jason Isaacs, Simon West, John Nevin, Magical Bones, Samantha Morton, Matt O'Kine, Miranda Rays, and Griffiths Jones, Chris Stark, Stu Whiffen with eight. And you're better than Richard Herring, James King, Ludie Lynn, Henry Normal, Janet Varney, Johnny Vegas with seven, Gary Delaney, Nell Frizzell, Frank Harper with six, and David McLean with five. So eight, you know, you're in really good company there. Yes, I'm, know, it's, it's, I'm, better than more, I'm better than more people that I'm work and yeah, I'll take that. And now I'm with Susie Dent. Yeah. I know yeah. you're with Susie, Susie Dent. Dent. Yeah. <laughs> Susie Dent and Griff Reese Jones, so you've done you've done all right. Um yeah, brilliant. Well that was uh, that was a really um it's an inspirational chat. I suffer from depression and uh, I got a lot I got a lot out of that. So thank oh, you very thank much. You. Um uh, good luck with everything. Um, uh, your books are out, available to buy now, uh, and uh, you can see your artwork as part of the Purple Bricks uh, campaign leading up to the 2021 Olympics. Is there a good place uh, where you can see your art online? Where's the best place to, to see it? Um, either on 
kind of my uh, socials or my website, henryfraserart.com. Perfect. Yeah, it's good to get a context for it if you're listening to this and try and see it in person or online on a screen, but you get the idea. <laughs> Thank you very much um, for joining uh, us, Henry. Thanks for joining us, Henry. Welcome to the fan club. Uh, I've been Nick Helm. This has been Nathaniel Metcalf. I was going to pause for him, but he never joins in. And uh, everybody, uh, look after yourselves. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, tell your friends and uh, give, send us your fan mail. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio.